Hey, Greg, so you and I, we've known each other since, I think, 2008, and we've had a lot of football conversations, and we decided we might as well, what winds up happening, we talk for 10 minutes, becomes 20 minutes, becomes 30 minutes, <laughs> so we thought maybe we'll record some of these conversations and try to make some money for doing it. Which is never a bad idea, but yeah, we've been talking ball for quite some time. You used to come to my office, I know, every off season, we'd sit around for a Saturday and a Sunday for, what, eight, 10 hours, watch some tape talk some ball. Um, I guess that was going on for quite a few years. And uh, yeah, we just, uh, now we spent a lot of time at the combine, obviously talking ball as well. So uh, yeah, it's been good. So yeah, we can do this now uh, kind of officially, I guess. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So you've been at NFL films for decades on end, creator uh, of the NFL matchup show. This will be my 44th season at NFL films, Andy. And I created the matchup show in 1984, believe it or not. So that's a few years ago. And uh, I've been doing it ever since, I guess, the last six years. Is this my seventh year? I lose track. You know, you get older, you lose track, Andy. But it's, I think, my seventh year where I'm, uh, quote-unquote, on-air talent on the show, is as, whereas I produced it for years and years. Yeah, that's and that's cool, and you do a great – it's the best football show on TV by a wide margin. It has been for a really long time. And then if people don't know my background uh, – Sports Illustrated for a lot of years under Peter King, the best that's done it was with I was with the Rams the last couple seasons, last three seasons, and uh, now we're here at the thirty third team trying to bring the kind of content that coaches and executives behind the scenes are talking about. We're trying to bring it out in front. So, um, and I, you know, Greg, I'll be honest, I hate banter on po- like when I listen to a podcast, they're ne- the hosts are never as interesting as they think, and they banter back and forth. I don't want to be those. So, if it's all right with you, I- I'll ask you what. You know, we don't have we haven't watched games yet, obviously, because the games really haven't kicked off. Uh, but you and I have been watching football, studying stuff all off season. What was the most interesting thing? Kind of a broad question, I yeah, know. It's but a broad question, but no, I know exactly what you mean. You know, one of the things I do, and just so people get a feel, is you know, during the season itself, and I imagine a lot of us do this. I know you do it as well. During the season itself, I'm trying to watch as many games on tape as I can each and every week. So you know. You might watch a team on a Monday when I come in on a Monday morning, and then I don't see that team again till the next week, maybe on a Wednesday. And I, in between, I'm watching a lot of other things. So while I take pretty detailed notes, obviously you're not necessarily focused on just one team, or I'm not, you know, because what I need to do for my matchup show and, and other things. So what I like to do in the offseason is really look at a number of different teams, specific sides of a ball, specific situations where I can just spend a day or two solely focused on one team. Yeah. And I've done that with a lot of teams, both offensively and defensively this summer. And one team I was really anxious to take a look at was the Miami Dolphins pass game. And I know it's one that's fascinated you as well. And I spent a lot of time this summer watching their pass game you know, when you watch 250 dropbacks in a row, you get a totally different feel about a pass game than when I'm trying to watch each and every week and sort of remembering what I watched. Because no matter what your notes say, it's not the same as actually seeing it again. And, you know, yeah. I know you've looked at it as well, but I have to tell you that I found their offense to be really fascinating to watch. Um, yeah, you know, I, I would. And I, I would I would almost guarantee. I'd guarantee you, Greg, that that was the most studied offense across the league by other coaches this year. There's usually about eight or ten offenses and defenses that everybody looks at closely, and one or two of those are, are a cut above. It was 
the the Niners and Rams for a while, and it, you know I'm sure they're still on the short list. Sean Payton's offenses have always been on that list. Andy Reid, and I, I think Mike McDaniel, what they've done in in Miami. And remember, McDaniel was the run game guy in San Francisco, and now we're talking about the pass game. I mean, that is there's no better schemer in football offensively in my mind. Not saying he's the best, but I'm saying there's no one clearly better than than Mike McDaniel right now. Yeah, and I think a couple of things, and we can, you know, talk a little more, get get into the weeds a little bit more. But, you know, I think one of the things that immediately stands out when you watch them, well, there, there's two things. Number one, they play a ton out of 21 personnel. And obviously that comes from his background with the 49ers. You know, most people know about Kyle Juszczyk with the 49ers, who probably plays more snaps at fullback than any uh, other fullback in the league. So Mike McDaniel yeah. brought that with him to the uh, Dolphins, and they – they played a, a ton out of 21. In fact, Tua Tagliavailoa had the most dropbacks out of 21 personnel of any quarterback in the league by a wide, wide margin. But the other thing that immediately stands out is their use of motion. And yeah. motion is a really fascinating thing, particularly the jet, the, when it's jet motion. Because and I know you've done a lot of this work in your previous you know time with with the Rams when you were doing a, a lot of work on the defensive side of the ball helping the defensive staff, but motion is is fascinating especially jet for this reason and I know you can address this probably better than I can because I'm sure you've done specific studies of this but the jet motion look where it's really difficult for defenses is is it jet motion or does it become change of strength motion. And I think that that becomes a big issue for defenses. And you could, as I said, you can certainly go into a little more detail on that, but that becomes an issue for defenses. What is it? You know, do you have to make an adjustment in your, in your defense? Are you bumping people over? Are you changing your coverage? Which if it's change of strength, you want to do that. But if it's just jet motion, you may not do that. You know? Yeah. So it's, as I said, you can, you can certainly expound on that. Yeah, well, because so with change of strength motion, let's say you're in a three-by-one formation. We're talking passing strength, of course. So you're right, passing right. strength to be the three-receiver side inherently. When they jet, let's say they jet motion out of that. And so now if here comes Tyree Kill screaming across the field. He's on the other side when the ball snaps. So now it's a two-by-two formation. And Hill has now brought the passing strength with him because let's say he – runs over to a, a side that had a receiver there already. Well, that's Tyree Kill plus another wide receiver. Two wide receivers on that side, two men on the other side. They're not going to be both wide receivers. No. So now the passing strength's over there with Hill. And that's the problem because when you sit down and and try to come up with a plan, you know, coaches are calling these the, their coverages and their rules. A lot of it you call a coverage and then you have they like to say tools within it, you know, yep. here's the coverage. And then here's like the little wrinkles. Like if they're in a bunch, we'll use this tool. They're in a stack. Here's our tool, that kind of thing. Well, your calls and tools get really compromised if they're going to change the passing strength, especially with a guy like Tyree Kill, because that's probably who you're, you're if you're going to have safety help, that's probably where the safety helps is dedicated as well. So defenses are forced to put a lot of, there's a lot on their plate that's changing in real time. And so you have to have a plan for that. I think that's what Miami's understands is, and it'll be interesting, Greg, to see what happens this year because, you know, so many teams are going to start running this jet motion at the snap. Now, they've been doing it, but the way Miami does it where it's it's speed motion and it's kind of there's different variations of the motion is we're going to see more of it at the snap. Used to be guys would go in motion, 
then they'd reset and they'd find out, well, hey, was it man or zone defense? How'd they react to the motion? Now let's call something. That's almost become normalized. I think now it's motion at the snap, like what we're talking about. And I'll be interested to see what happens because Miami knows they've been studied a lot. Defenses need to have answers for this stuff. And I think Miami is going to have answers for the answers. And what will we see now? You know, let's maybe let's get specific. The chart, we both, I think the Chargers were the team that handled this best last yes. year. Dolphins offense. Would you agree with that? I would, yes. And obviously that's a week one matchup, but they played week 14 last year. And it was obviously two his worst game of the year. Um, I remember at one point in the game, I think he was something like three for 17 or three for 18. Yeah. Uh, those are just numbers, obviously. But but what the Chargers did was something that going into the game, you wouldn't have thought that they would do that. Or if you said to someone, here's what they're going to do, you know, here's that's not a great idea. Because let's just step back for one moment, Andy, because what is what is without going into the deep weeds, what is the Dolphins pass game based on? It's based on timing and rhythm, a quick game type of throws. And they work inside the numbers a lot. I mean, that's the foundation of what they do. There's not a ton of throws outside the numbers. I mean, obviously everybody does it at times, but when you say their pass game is predominantly built inside the numbers and it's rhythm based. And one of my favorite stats, I think, yeah, out of that base personnel, I think one of the favorite stats I found this offseason, kind of taking the film notes and then seeing if the numbers verify it, the Dolphins are the only team in the league that have an average depth of target greater inside the numbers than outside the numbers. And McDaniel came from San Francisco. That The Niners have led the league in yak yards after catch, I think five years in a row now. They're a catch-and-run offense in a lot of ways. So the assumption's kind of like, that's all right, that's what they're doing in Miami. That's not what they're doing in Miami, though. This is, in fact, the Dolphins were near the bottom of the league in yak yards because those average depths of target are so great. These guys are throwing the ball downfield vertically inside the numbers off of these jet motions and different play action looks out of 21 personnel like you're talking about. That's the Dolphins passing game, threatening you with speed between the numbers. And we sit here and say, well, they're the most studied team in the NFL, most likely. I wonder how much of it do you think comes from the fact they have, I think, the two best, not I, I, Tyree kills the best, and Jalen Waddle's not far behind him as just pure speed, vertical burner type yeah. weapon. You know, they got well, perfect tools for this system. It's interesting you mentioned that about the 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 length of throw, you know, from the the line of scrimmage, but because you know, I don't when I watch their tape, I don't view them as a vertical passing game the way you think of vertical passing games. Because, you know, 10 yards to me, even though it's deeper than, let's say, eight yards, obviously, it's still not vertical. Like, I still view their pass game as kind of short to short to intermediate because of the rhythmic nature of it. It's very three-step time, three-step drop timing based, which yeah. is really what Tua's game is. You know, he's not a sit in the pocket, sit on his back foot and drive the ball 25 yards down the field. That's not who he is. So it plays to his strength as well. He's got incredibly quick feet on his drop. He sets, he plants, he delivers, and he's, his ball placement is extremely precise between the numbers. But they do a ton with run action. And yeah. with all that motion, the key thing is they get free access for their receivers. So the receivers are not disrupted off the ball. And that's a big, big issue because you can't run those timing that timing and rhythm pass game if your receiver's routes are disrupted off the line of scrimmage. 
Yeah, because if you disrupt one receiver, you almost disrupt them all because these are route combinations we're talking about. And it's right. all predicated on one guy's here, the other guy's there in relation to you. you know, so you disrupt one, you, you, you can compromise the play. Greg, I think my, my guess would be that free access you're talking about where they're getting very little press coverage because of the motions, because of the speed of those guys. You, it's dangerous to press a speedster because if you miss, it's over. It's a touchdown for them offensively. But I, I think that's probably a big part of why their average depth of target is what it is. Because you're right, they're not, you know, they're not, a, a lot of play action teams are going to, it's going to be fake handoff, move the pocket, post cross combination over the top, and now we're throwing deep. Miami certainly does that, but that's not what their play action game is foundationed in. Um, so I think most likely, I think what we're seeing is throws that are eight yards in most offenses for these guys become 10 or 12 yards right. because of the speed, because of the motion. They're getting that clean access. Those guys can get into their routes quicker and therefore deeper than, than other teams. And that's that's where they're that's where they're different. As they stress linebackers vertically, it's not that they're stressing the whole defense vertically. And I think you the just made a great point. Work. You know what I'm saying, though. They make linebackers yeah. play. Yeah, yeah. And you just made a great point. Conceptually, even though that number is a couple of yards deeper than maybe the average, it's still technically a rhythm short passing game. It's just with the speed of those guys, they get a couple of yards deeper and they're clean off the ball. But, you know, one thing that I you mentioned the Chargers and what they did. And yeah. Hey, Greg, can I interrupt you real quick? I just want to, because sure. I don't want to forget to ask you philosophically then, if you're a defensive coach, what we've just talked about, I think you've made a great case, you know, hey, this actually isn't purely a vertical passing offense. And I think the counter to that would be, they have the two best pure vertical weapons or two as good as anyone. Would a defensive coordinator for all intents and purposes still treat them as a vertical offense anyway? I would say the answer to that is yes. And and you would know you worked for a defensive coach, a defensive coordinator, because what's the last thing that a defensive coordinator wants to have happen. And that's a 60 yard touchdown. So yes, yeah. I think the very nature of the speed that Hill and Waddle bring to the table forces coordinators to play a certain way which only enhances the timing rhythm pass game we're talking about and it's one reason why timing rhythm throws that for other teams might be caught at eight yards get caught at 10 or 11 yards for the yeah but but the concept is still the same it's just you know and i think you know exactly what i mean the concept is still the same um yeah but one thing the Chargers did, and, you know, we've talked a lot about motion, but they don't run motion necessarily on every single play. But but if you're not going to get be able to get to the quarterback to disrupt their offense, because obviously if you're talking about three-step drop timing or quick five-step drop timing, Andy, as you know, you're not really going to impact the quarterback a great deal. So yep. then how do you disrupt their passing game? You have to disrupt their passing game by disrupting the routes. and And – Sometimes you can press them if they're not in motion, but other times you can't. So you have to be able to figure out how you're going to play coverage to disrupt the routes. So in a sense, you need more bodies in coverage because you're not going to get to the quarterback. You know, obviously third and nine changes everything. Long yardage changes things. But normal down and distance situations, you're not going to really get there. So you have to disrupt routes. But what I thought that the Chargers didn't, like I said, if you said to someone, hey, this is what they're going to do. They would have said, you're crazy. The Chargers, as you know, they play with their corners, a boundary corner and a field corner. Uh, and they brought in Jackson last year to be their boundary corner, and he got hurt. 
early in the season. Yeah. So Michael Davis, who was their corner of the year before, uh, he became their boundary corner, and they played Asante Samuel at field corner. So what they did against the, the uh, Dolphins was they basically had Davis as the boundary corner play press man on almost every snap. Uh, and again, I say almost every snap. I don't want someone to say, well, I wasn't 100% of the time. But that was that was the, the plan. And he did it no matter what the split of that boundary wide receiver was. It could have been a, a reduced split he played press. It could have been a little wider split he played press. And what that did is they literally had him play zero man. So they took the safety to that side, the boundary safety, and they had him kind of cheat and rotate inside to get another body inside to take away passing windows for Tua. So you live with the fact that you have Michael Davis, who is essentially a backup corner, play press man, uh, whether it was Hill or Waddle, or it could have been Sherfield at times, but Hill or Waddle is who you're really worried about. And they had another body inside. So they, they could almost have two lurkers or two robbers, whatever you want to call it. They could almost have two of those guys and live with Michael Davis playing press man, zero press man on the perimeter. And except for one play to Hill where Davis fell down and was a 60-yard touchdown, it turned out to work. Absolutely. And Davis, I thought, was phenomenal in that game. And really, really, he was better than Jackson by a wide margin. I agree. Season. Yeah, Jackson. And it'll be interesting to see what happens this season, who plays the most and all that. But, um, you know, the other thing they did, Greg, and it's, if you think about what we just talked about, it's a great strategy. If, if you have a team that throws a little bit deeper inside the numbers than kind of quarters-type structure shells where you have those safeties helping in those seam areas, that's the answer right there. You got the sideline to maybe help the corner, or he's probably playing outside technique to push the receivers towards those safeties inside. And that was a great plan. That's the other thing they did, Greg, in known passing situations. Well, first of all, that, that pressure talking about, that's a departure for Brandon Staley and that scheme. As well. It's all built on off coverage to make everything look the same to the offense. Every snap, they got away from that identity or expanded or were malleable with it and changed things for that to disrupt the timing for that game. It was great. The other thing they did was second down pass situations, third down pass situations. They played more cover two or two man yep. by, by a boy. It's triple their season. I went and looked it up, triple their season average for those two combined. They played on about half the snaps, I want to say. Cover two, that allows a corner to be more aggressive with some of those jams because he's got a safety right behind him. Two man, as you know, that's going to allow the corner kind of the, t- the technique you were describing because those in two man, that safety is probably going to be a little lower most of the time. But it gave help over the top, and that's what allowed those corners to be so aggressive on the speed receivers. And as you said, they the plan was pretty much coverage behind a four-man D-line pass rush. There were not many five-man pressures. So it was really a coverage-based approach uh, without a lot of blitz, you know. So, uh, again, and it was effective because they were able to kind of take away with an extra body the middle of the field, which is obviously where the foundation of the Dolphins' pass game uh, is. But, you know, you said something that really struck me. And from watching tape and talking to coaches, uh, and, and just to sort of broaden this point out a little bit, you know, you start, I'm starting to wonder as I watch more and more tape and I know you do the same, and you see a lot more quick game, whether it's RPOs, whether it's just quick game in general. You know, you're seeing that more in the league. Um, I'm starting to wonder if corner 
is becoming the most important position on defense. You know, we, everybody used to say edge pass rusher. And, you know, there's a lot of old school coaches who will still say, you know, pass rush, pass rush, pass rush. And there's no question when you get to, you know, third and nine, those kinds of situations, you want, you'd love to have a four man pass rush that can impact the quarterback as opposed to having to bring extra people because it's a game of numbers. Obviously the more you rush, the fewer in coverage, but you know, I'm starting to wonder if ultimately these quick game pass games have to be defended by corners who can play press can disrupt receivers um, or to do what, you know, Brandon Staley did and just have more bodies in coverage, um, you know, to, and, and have your corners be a bigger factor because even, you know, we've talked so much about sort of the Vic Fangio school of defense where there's split safety, whether it's, you know, cover six, which is, would be halves to the uh, boundary or cover eight, which would be halves to the field. It's, you know, quarter, quarter, half, whatever you want to call it, but it's a split safety coverage. Yeah. And a lot of times versus three by one sets, we know that that boundary safety has to be involved with number three because teams often put speed to number three. So the boundary safety has to turn inside and be involved with three vertical, you know, because if, if if number three vertical is, is a Tyree kill type guy with speed, there's no way an underneath defender is hunting him up and running with him. So now right. what does that mean? That means that your boundary corner literally has to be able to play zero, zero man. Yeah. And you're seeing that more and more in the league. So, you know, corners to, to me are becoming, not that they were, they were always important, but, you know, I'm wondering if they, they become even more important. Yeah, it's a great discussion. I mean, the team, you know, Miami runs the same scheme as Brandon Staley. In fact, we, respectfully, we ought to say Brandon Staley's chargers run the same scheme as Miami because the guy who basically invented this scheme we're talking about is Vic Fangio, the right. Dolphins defensive coordinator, uh, Staley's mentor from the Denver and Chicago years when they were together. Those guys just traded for Jalen Ramsey, who played boundary corner in the Rams system, same kind of system for the reasons that you're talking about. And he would play it in dime and in the, the red area, you know, past situations. It, it used to be when we thought of a number one corner, it was, that guy, who's he going to travel with? That guy travels with the number one receiver. And you kind of think, all right, he plays the number one receiver. And then it shuts him out and everybody else plays around him. The only guy that really ever has done that in my lifetime, probably Dion. I, I was a kid, so I can't verify right. that. I've heard it. And then Darrell Revis, I think, played that way, where he could take a number one receiver and play on an island and, and do it. There aren't corners that really do that, though. And you don't so the, see that much these days at all. No. And so the number what, what teams are doing instead with the number one corner is playing them on the boundary, like you described, because of all the different ice, all all the different isolation coverages you get out of that. Um, that's, I mean, that's that's how most number one, quote unquote, number one corners are used now. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, and then if you go to the flip side. I remember talking to some wide receiver coaches at the combine and there they say, well, the most important thing is to have a boundary X receiver, wide receiver who can win one on one. So it yeah. works both ways. You know, you, you need a corner that can take away a big time boundary X. And, you know, offenses think in terms of, well, that guy's got to be able to win one-on-one. But it's funny you say that about corners because, you know, as you know, someone like Sauce Gardner, who came in last year, had a great year. He played left corner and DJ played right corner. Sauce Gardner didn't match up to to anybody. And again, that could change this year. You never know. But their defense was really, really good. So I would doubt it. I'd be shocked if that changes. I would agree with you on that 100%. But I mean, he did not match up to receivers. He played left corner. 
you rarely see corners truly match up the way they did years and years ago. You know, the other thing that's that really surprised me this offseason, Greg, kind of sticking with the what we're talking about and keep it on the Chargers defense, for example. If I if I asked you where would where do you guess they ranked in blitz rate in passing situations, second and long, certainly third down, known pass situations, where would you guess the Chargers ranked in blitz rate last season? Boy. Now I'm going back into my memory and I would bet just, and I could be dead wrong. And obviously you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but I would bet it's higher than people might think, you know, based on the fact that everybody thinks, Oh, it's Vic Fangio style defense. And you don't immediately think of that as a high pressure defense rushing five. But if memory serves me correctly, because I, I, the Chargers defense, I did not watch in, in the, this summer. So I'm thinking back to watching it in detail last year during the season it seems to me that they blitzed a good amount. They were probably, you know, I don't want to say they were in the top five or top seven, but they were, I would bet they were in the top half. They were, they were top seven. They were number seven in known passing situations. Yeah. So, I mean, that's great analysis there. I would have guessed middle of the pack most at, at most. The other team that was the reason I bring it up Denver last year, which runs the same scheme. It'll now be Carolina running it with the Giro Evero, the defensive coordinator, another Staley guy, another assistant of his. Um, th- they were basically the, the league lead in fire zone usage. And I didn't realize that until I started studying this stuff that this Vic Fangio scheme, Fangio himself, I don't recall. I'd have to go back and look at how much he was into the fire zones, but fire zones, are a bigger deal in this system than I realized. That's what surprised me. You start out in that quarter's look, but you're going to rotate to a single high safety, and then you're going to add a fifth rusher. It's post-snap safety movement, of course. Well, there's also a lot of teams, and, and the, the Fangio School does this as well, um, and I've had this conversation with a D coordinator who's not from the Fangio School, but you see it with the Fangio School, where you can run you know, these zone blitz concepts, fire zones, yeah, I think is, is what you're referring to, and, and teams – do play like a four across look on the back end with two underneath. And it's not quarters the way normal quarters is taught, as you know, but it's still four across. And obviously there's a match element to it because you have to match routes. So it's not a pure zone coverage, you know, where guys are just playing in a spot. Um, But it, it, it is a four across look and it's basically a blitz coverage. You know, yeah. because you've got two underneath, which doesn't seem like a lot of guys underneath, but you do have four across, but you have to match somewhere along the line because otherwise there's too many voids. Yeah. You know, one guy, our buddy Steve Spagnolo does variations of that. There's He's a lot of that. Four. Yeah. There's a lot across, of that. Two underneath. Kansas City's one of the more blitz oriented defenses in the league in a lot of ways. I don't know if we think of them in that sense, uh, but I, I think that's, you know, they're a hard defense to play against because of things like what you just described. The other thing we'll see and kind of, it's not purely in the fire zone, but talking about almost talking about different quarters, structures and presentations yep. now. Uh, and I had a defensive coach tell me, I'm not going to say his name because maybe he'll think it's a competitive advantage thing, but he told me he thinks the slot corner rotating back to safety. So you basically, you put your slot corner post snap, he moves back to safety and kind of plays quarter safety a lot of the time. That's the hardest coverage rotation for a defender to do, but it can be really effective, especially on earlier downs where you can then put the safety in the run fit equation a little differently if you're willing to rotate your slot back uh, 
but we're, we're seeing that as well. You know, Jonathan Gannon did that a lot, and I think he'll do it yeah, a lot well, in Arizona. That's Eber a great Flus point. One thing you don't want to have is you don't really want to have a slot corner, um, and, and because teams play a lot more out of nickel, you know, just that's the way the game has, has gone. You don't really want your slot corner um, to be involved in an inside run gap, you know, because he's not really yeah. built for that. Um, you know, which is why and a lot that's of where the motion started, by the way, Greg, is, is teams wanted to run jet because it makes the defenders bump over one gap. And all of a sudden, what you just described happens regularly. Your slot corner against 11 personnel run plays. There's times he's playing the B gap, even the A gap, depending on the formation. Which is why you see a lot of teams uh, line up their three technique if they're a four man, you know, front, obviously. Um, a three technique to the slot side because you do not want your slot corner to have to be a B gap player in the run game. Yeah. Great point. Great point. I love that. What else, what else like defensively, like, like, so which defenses did you study this? Off I'll tell season? you the defense I studied really in detail and, you know, you probably feel the same way sometimes. Sometimes you watch tape and, you know, there's a team that you maybe really like and you watch a lot of plays in a row and you go, ah, they're not quite as good as I thought. Other times you watch tape and you go, wow, that's even better than I thought. And I really liked it. I watched the 49ers uh, fairly recently. I think it was last week. And I watched um, every one of their third downs. Okay. So there were a lot of plays, maybe close to 200 plays. I wanted to you know, watch all their third downs. And I got to tell you, I came away thinking this is a really, really good defense. Now, we know they have a new coordinator. You know, you and I don't know exactly what tweaks will be made, so we won't discuss that. But, you know, the stuff that are, that really stood out, they were on third down. They were a big, loaded front front team. And by that, I mean they would line up three defensive linemen to one side of the offensive center. And then very often, Fred Warner, the linebacker, would be the one of their linebackers in, in nickel. They were a nickel team. They did not play dime. Fred Warner yeah. would be would be the kind of the the wild card. There would be times he'd be a, a stand up three technique opposite the load. There'd be other times he'd jump in and out. There'd be other times he would be totally out and he'd be a coverage guy. But they did so many things with Warner out of that loaded front, and they were a Big, big stunting team, big stunt team on third down and particularly out of that loaded front. And very yeah. often Warner would be part of it and they'd have multiple stunt concepts. They'd have one on each side, different concepts. And it was really, really difficult to protect. Now, when Warner was part of the rush, it was really hard for offensive lines because he would eat up the guard on the opposite side of the load. And they had some really cool stunts. Bosa had a number of sacks where he would was a long looper and he would come into the a gap and there was no one there. And, yeah. uh, you know, they, they were really, really good. And the other thing, I mean, a couple of other things stood out, but Fred Warner to me, and I, I think he's far and away the best linebacker in the game. In, in not only what they ask him to do, but what he's capable of doing. I mean, you watch him in pass coverage. Not only is he a great athlete, he's 6'3", 235, has tremendous length, but his awareness of routes as an underneath zone defender, and I know you've studied him working for the Rams, his, his, his just awareness of, of routes based on splits and what routes come from splits, I think is as good as any linebacker in the league. And then his ability just to run the seam. I mean, in yeah. the playoff game, he was running the scene with C.D. Lamb. 
you know, and winning and winning, and winning. Just, yeah, yeah, not just surviving, taking away the throws, right? Yeah, I mean, I just think that he gives that defense so so much. Well, and so six three runs really well, amazing spatial awareness of routes behind him. That's probably why they're so comfortable putting him up on the line of scrimmage because if they do drop him back, which they will more than not, most likely. They're, they're, he's going to figure out where to go and where to be still. He doesn't need to be standing out there to, to begin with. No, he, he had a play that. against Miami. I forget. It, I think it was it, which Miami game. I think it was the first game where um, they, Miami ran dagger. And dagger, of course, is an inside vertical and then a route outside that's a dig. And as soon as the ball was snapped, literally half a second after that, his eyes went right to the side of the routes. He knew exactly what was happening. And instead of just dropping to a landmark mark spot, he he literally was moving with the dig. And two yeah. through the ball and, and Warner got his hand on it. I don't know if you remember the specific play, but it was just not only the athletic element of it, but he immediately knew what the route concept was going to be. Yeah. Niners, by the way, they were second in the league in stunt usage in past situations oh. last year. Dallas had was first. Both of those teams were highly productive when they did I would stunt. bet another team that was up there was New England. I don't know where they ranked in terms of stunts, but I thought they were really effective with stunts as well. I agree. I actually looked that up because I, I thought the exact same thing. I looked up, I think, out of their dime package. They were closer to the league average than you would guess. It shocked me because I would have thought I, I would have thought they'd be number three based on what Watching you said. Tape they line up again, five down you know, fronts and run those stunts, and and they do it with bigger bodied guys, and they they have pretty complex stunts. It's not just yes. the TE where you're picking and looping a guy. They, no. they bring guys from different directions, both sides of formation. I love layered stunts, by the way. Uh, Broncos were good at those on. That's defense. a great term. I'm going to steal that from you, Andy. That's a great term you can, because they you do can a have, lot of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, multiple stunts. You stunt one, here comes another stunt right behind the stunt. The two teams that – I love it when they add a linebacker off the ball into those equations too, like layered stunt blitzes basically. Denver was great at that. The other guy that I thought was really, really good is Mike McDonald in Baltimore, their defensive yes. coordinator, designing some of that stuff. Yeah, they, you know, they didn't blitz as much this year as I, I would have anticipated going into the season, you know, because obviously he replaced Wink Martindale and, um, you know, Martindale was really well known for uh, his pressure concepts and his ability to break down protections with his front looks. Um, and then Mike McDonald came in after a year at, uh, at Michigan. And, um, you know, I, I guess I would have expected more pressure concepts and maybe he was just working through things, but they did not pressure as much as I would have thought. Yeah, and no, I can tell you, knowing McDonald over the years, I wasn't surprised that he he he's pretty. He, he wants sound coverage. He wants to have answers. I think you know he doesn't want to just sit back and play guys seven guys in coverage. He he will get after you more than a typical play caller. He's not Wink Martindale though. Martindale far and away is the most blitz heavy right. guy in the league. The numbers verify that every year. So that was the philosophical difference. And, and I think McDonald really wants to have answers. So he, he does not feel comfortable risking voids in, in coverage very much. I could definitely understand that because I, for instance, they played Cincinnati, you know, they're going to play them week two this year. And I went back and looked at both those games and they did not blitz Joe Burrow much at all. Now. I, and obviously the Bengals yeah. line is still not a real good O line. Uh, so again, 
they they certainly had some questions and, and injury concerns last year at corner. So that could have been a factor as well, because obviously when you play the Bengals, you want to feel like you don't you probably don't feel like you're matching up one on one with backup corners against Chase and Burrow and Boyd. Yeah, correct. And T. Higgins is your number two receiver. You know, he, he'd be a number one on probably half the teams in the league. Um, I wrote down here out of so you're right. Cincinnati, they were the most coverage oriented. I'm looking at my Baltimore notes. I wrote best in the league with designer pressure question mark. I, I think when they do blitz, there's an intention to it. Like they, and you know, the, who, the guy that actually stood out quite a bit in it is Patrick queen, who I don't know if he'll be there next year. You hear a lot about him, yeah. uh, but you know, he was a pretty dynamic blitzer for them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I was just surprised because you just think of Baltimore blitzing a lot, but um you know, it's funny. I've been watching a bunch of teams that are theoretically in the Fangio school. Like, you know, I'm in the process of, of, of taking a, a look at uh, Seattle's defense because Clint Hurt has that background, as you know, as well. And, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes, and you can help me out with this, sometimes the they're in the Fangio school is starting to feel like, well, it's the West Coast offense. Like everybody just thinks that yeah. like they're just going to every snap's going to be, you know, split safety and, you know, quarter, quarter, half. And it's not, you know, maybe that might be a foundational starting point when they teach it. And you and I both know that from that look, you can do pretty much anything. But that doesn't mean teams play it, you know, on 90 percent of their snaps. Correct. And Seattle's the best example for that. Philadelphia was kind of considered a Fangio team last year because Fangio was advising them. And and I think you could see that, but they were a variation of it. They were more of right. a cousin and a sibling, I would say. And Seattle was probably more of a half sibling. They were a little more than a cousin, not a full sibling. They were a sibling, uh, a half sibling in the Fangio system. Clinton Hurt coached for Fangio. He told me that that was the best thing that happened to him. He was an outside linebackers coach under Fangio in the scheme early on. And he's, you know, he's kind of a defensive line guy. And right. it's, those guys don't always translate smoothly to coordinators because they don't deal with coverages as much. And I think coverage is kind of the starting point for a coordinator. Hurt said in that system, because so often the linebackers get walked out over the slot because they're not, they're going to kind of, that's just the way the system is. Uh, you have to learn the coverages really well to coach the outside linebackers. And he said well, that was what was key for him. Right, because foundationally they do start with split safety. So if your safeties are not going to walk down over the slot, your linebacker has to bump out. So, yeah, yeah. so that, that's at least a starting point. I wrote, as I got my Seattle notes up, 17th in pre-snap middle field closed looks. In other words, a single high safety. So right in the league average, that was by far the highest of the Fangio teams. Everyone else, Philadelphia actually ranked 18th, which surprised me a little bit. But, uh, you know, everyone else is split safety. Seattle does not line up in the split safety looks even as much well, as, and, as the other. And that could also be a function of personnel. A lot of people might not know him, you know, unless you're in the Seattle area or, or follow the NFC West, as I know you obviously did working for the Rams. But Quandre Diggs is one of the better post safeties in the league. Um, and he might not be a well-known name, but he's a good player and he can play post safety. And there's not a ton of great post safeties in the NFL. Guys that snap after snap after snap can play single high. Yeah, no, good point. Their success rate allowed defensively when they started in a pre-snap middle field closed look was 12th in the league. That success rate meaning basically did they keep, you know, get, is the offense getting ahead in the sticks? Did they gain five right. plus yards on the first down? 80% of the yards needed on second down, et cetera. 
So success rate was good and, and single high out of split safety. Uh, they were 31st last year when they lined up in that pre-snap. So you could very well be right. You know, their guys, my guess is their guys, which would make sense. They've been a single high defense for a lot of years. Those guys, maybe they were more comfortable with some of that. Be interesting to see if Jamal Adams is on the field healthy this year, does this change at all? I would imagine that would be more single high for them if Adams is in, because I would think that he's better the closer he is to the line of scrimmage, yeah, the better I'm, he is. That's a fascinating conversation because don't forget that they uh, signed Julian Love and he's a safety. So, you know, I'm wondering if when Adams comes back, if he's essentially a dime player. I mean, I know it's Jamal yeah. Adams and he's, you know, was traded for a lot of picks and all that, but he's been hurt a lot. And I've had numerous conversations with people and they, a lot of people tell me that he's best suited to play dime linebacker. So yeah, kind of like you know, the Adrian Phillips role a little bit for what what New England does there. I think that'd great. be a good and that use might be a great comp, a great comp. Yeah, that'd be a good use of uh, of Adams. And, and look, they're versatile in the secondary too. Julian Love has played almost every position yep. back there. I think Kobe Bryant, uh, who will probably play a, a sub package role for them. I think he's been in multiple spots. Certainly Devin Witherspoon, which you would know more than I. You know, that guy played all over the formation. And Diggs, they don't use him this way. People forget, though, Diggs in Detroit was a fairly versatile guy. He's so good in the post, he's kind of just found his home there. But they have a lot of versatility in their secondary, which is interesting, don't you think? If if they are a fan, just say they are a Fangio school team, that's all built on looking the same pre-snap as much as possible lining up the same way. Do you think if you're super versatile as a secondary, would you be more inclined to line up the same way every snap and trust that you could rotate different guys to different spots? Or would you be less inclined to to do it that way and play matchups? I would think that would depend on your trust in your players. Um, You know, Love's a veteran at this point. Diggs is a veteran. Um, It depends on who plays the slot. Brian played it last year. Um, I don't know if Witherspoon, when he's healthy, if they see him as their slot, he's a rookie. So I think that would depend on your players because you know how it is with rotation, um, Andy. You know, if guys are off in their rotation, you you run the risk of giving up big plays. You know, yeah. not that you just want to line up in one thing and play, but you have to be careful about that because if, if you're asking guys to get to a spot from somewhere they're not to begin with, you know, there, there's a timing to all that, and there's kind of a choreography to all that, and you have to have major trust in your players to do that. Yeah, and if it's personnel-driven, it could just be a function of, of if Jordan Brooks is healthy. I know you were high on Brooks last year. Yeah, I was, until he got hurt. I yeah. thought there was a stretch. I thought he played really, really well. Um, and then, of course, he got hurt, and I don't know if yeah. he's ready to play week one. But, uh, um, yeah, I thought there was a four- or five-game stretch Uh, And I watch Seattle's defense every week where I thought he played at a high level. Yeah. And you were probably a little higher on him than I was. I do think he's a a plus player though. He's a quality starter. Let's say he plays to that level. If, if, you know, hopefully he does. And they have Bobby Wagner back. Wagner did not come off the field in Los Angeles last year. He even played their dime packages. And one thing about Wagner, he is extremely good as a, as a blitzer himself. He's that's something he's really developed in recent years. And with the Rams, he was, they do what you call simulated pressures. You know, you, you rush, it looks like you're rushing five, but one of the defensive line men drops out. So you're really rushing four messes with the protections, all that stuff. Wagner was extremely good on those. Clint Hurt ran simulated pressure more than everybody, but one team, I forget who ran it the most last year, but they were second in simulated pressure last year. So uh, I don't know if know, this team was first, but a team that did a lot of that was the Titans. 
Yeah, then they probably were. Yeah, they the probably were. were a big sim pressure defense. Um, but, you know, you yeah. mentioned about not coming off the field. It made me think of another defense that I don't really think this this coach gets enough credit for how good he is and how and how long he's been good. And that's Dennis Allen um, with the Saints. And then speaking of guys who don't come off the field, Demario Davis played 100 percent of the defensive snaps a year ago. That's unheard of. And particularly for a guy who's 33, 34 years old. He, you know, he's like almost the Jason Kelsey of defense where he, once he turned 30, he got way better, it feels like. I didn't yep. love him in New York, and I was looking back, I was probably just wrong on him was a big part of it. But he is, he's been first or second team all pro, I think, four years in a row now. And they play those three, two dime packages. Yes. He's a pass rusher in those. He can play in space. He moves so well. I mean, he, I agree with you. I think he's as good as any linebacker in a lot of ways. And he's done it in his 30s. And by the way, he's the reason that they play a lot of three, two, six, because he can rush the quarterback and he yeah. can rush from different spots inside or outside. So he can act as a D lineman. But um, but, yeah, they played a ton of three, two, six. Um, and, and of course, the, the Saints and I think the Chiefs are in this category as well. They play more two man on third down than any team in the league. But one thing about their two man and. I remember having this conversation with Dennis Allen and, you know, sometimes you have a conversation with the coach and they, they tell you, but they don't want to give too quite everything away. You know, you know that. Yep. Um, I always feel like there's a, the line is blurred with the saints between two men and one robber. Sometimes I feel like I'm not exactly yep. sure what it is. And, you know, again, maybe quarterbacks don't know either. You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I feel like it's a blurred line. Yeah, that's a great, I, and I know exactly what you're saying. I would agree with that. I know the times that I've asked coaches about that sort of thing, a lot of it I think can be a function of uh, when they have double teams designed into the calls for certain receivers. Right. And it's easy to kind of overlook, you know, you, you and I, we start watching the cover. It's easy to overlook. I don't know about you. I find that an easy one to overlook sometimes if you're not thinking about it front of mind, but uh, you know who I love on the, and we, we probably need to get out of here in a second, but we're talking saints defense man coverage the guy i think who has a chance to be the breakout player in the league defensively is alante taylor ah, they're, they're corner so glad you I mentioned him. unbelievable down the stretch let me tell you something i watched that kid coming out of tennessee okay i loved his college tape and then i'm seeing a lot of guys you know draft guys who do a lot of work you know and who you know we all respect they do work and they're telling me this guy's a safety and i'm saying you're out of your mind He's six feet. He's close to 200 pounds. He runs a 4.38. And I actually had this conversation with Jeff Ireland, and he said, I don't understand why people are saying that. The guy's a corner all the way. I loved him coming out. And when he played last year for those five, six, whatever number of games it was, Andy, at outside corner, mm-hmm. and he'll be their slot corner this year from what I, I gather. But I oh, thought really? he played. I, I think they're going to keep Adebo and, and obviously Lattimore when he's healthy is a great corner. I think Adebo and Lattimore will play on the outside. I believe Taylor's going to be their slot corner because Roby's gone. So, um, yeah, but I thought Taylor played at a really high level last year. Yeah, he, no, he, he definitely did. And I think he could, he, I think he's a guy you can play him anywhere. I didn't know that he had a safety reputation. I know. And I don't know where that came from because he played corner at Tennessee and I'm watching him in college and I'm thinking this guy, he looks like a really good corner prospect to me. Yeah. Cause it's Amadi would be the only other true slot corner that they had. The guy, uh, he was a Seahawk for a while. So yeah. That no, he's going to play the slot from everything I, I gather. Yeah. Alante Taylor in the slot. That'll be interesting then. Um, 
last last thing I want to discuss Cam. So if we're talking Saints defense, I feel like out of respect, we need to say Cam Jordan's name. Cam Jordan to you, knee jerk reaction, Hall of Famer. Yes, uh, I and and again, he might not be thought that way, but first of all, he's played a lot of years at a really really high level. His sack total is really good. I mean, he's gonna. I think he's got 115, 120 sacks, give or take. Um, 115. 115. Um, 0.5. I bet he, 115.5. I've met Cam Jordan. I bet you he wants that 0.5 included in there. And the other thing, too, is he's a really good run defender. I mean, we think about edge players, he's a DN, as purely pass rushers. But, you know, I think if you speak to coaches around the league and just watch tape like you and I do, he's a really complete player. He's a really good run defender. Uh, and I, you know, to me, to play at this level for as long as he did at that position is hard to do. Um, and he doesn't miss games. He doesn't miss games either. That's the other thing. Or snaps. I mean, he's no. in there for 80, 90% of the snaps too. Not probably 90%. Yeah. I, I think um, he's a terrific football player. Yeah. I think him or Max Crosby is, you, you could argue that's the best run defending defensive end in the league in a lot of ways. And I think it'll be a simple discussion when they get to the Hall of Fame discussion for him. Let's say he gets 10 sacks this year, which I think is likely. That would put him tied for 18th all-time with Dwight Freeney. So he's going to finish top 20, top 15 of sacks of all-time. And then tackles for loss, for what it's worth, he's already number 10 all-time on that. And he'll probably be top five if he plays two more years. Yeah, no, I I think that he's going to be one of those guys that people who are not really following closely and and maybe wouldn't be aware that right now he has 115.5 sacks um (laughs) they they probably wouldn't be aware of that but he's a really really good football player i'm impressed did you had you heard the one how'd you i'm impressed you got that number and how did you come up 115 a second ago that was just kind of off the top of my head based on that's pretty impressive yeah that's that's pretty impressive so good. Well, hey, I could talk football with you all day, but uh, we got to get back to work. So I'll let you go. All right. This was awesome. Yep. Yeah. Great.